0: DeepMind's AlphaFold, a system that predicts a protein's 3D structure from its amino acid sequence, made even bigger headlines when its second iteration, AlphaFold 2, was released in December 2020. It was hailed as a solution to the 50-year-old protein folding problem, and DeepMind has continued to build on this work. But AlphaFold was just one step And there's much more to be done. As you might already know, proteins are large, complex molecules that do most of the work in cells and are required for the structure, function, and regulation of the body's tissues and organs. They help to protect the body against disease, transmit signals to coordinate biological processes between cells, tissues, and organs, and do much more. So if we could engineer proteins to create proteins that have desired functions, whether or not those proteins have actually existed in nature, we could make important progress towards fighting diseases and many other scientific pursuits. My guest today, Kevin Yang, is a world-leading expert in the field of BioML. At Microsoft Research, he studies how deep learning models can be applied to biological systems protein engineering, and design. Our conversation describes Kevin's path into this space and a number of his works, how ML-based protein designs are validated in the real world, where protein engineering is going next, and much more. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack, to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing, and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Kevin Yang. Kevin, you've been doing a lot of really exciting research, I think, in the bioML space recently, and it seems like the space in general has certainly flourished. A lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with AlphaFold, of course, and I'm sure you're probably tired of hearing that name by now, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how you navigated into this space.
1: Yeah, so I started my PhD at Caltech in, back in 2014. And I had done some research in undergrad and I, in chemical engineering and, and usually in biology-based labs, bioengineering cell labs. And I had come to Caltech originally wanting to work with Francis Arnold. In her protein engineering lab. And I had spent one summer already doing research with her, and another summer, uh, in the summer right before my PhD, doing research in another lab at Caltech. So I kind of created my own rotation program. So I was pretty sure I wanted to join Frances' lab. But I also knew that I didn't want to do the kind of hardcore organic chemistry that a lot of her lab does. Uh, that's because her lab engineers enzymes, amongst other things. And it turns out that when you engineer enzymes to do new reactions, being in organic chemistry who knows a lot about these sorts of reactions is really helpful. And I wanted to be a protein engineer and a chemical engineer, but I didn't want to be an organic chemist. So I was meeting with Francis, uh, who are going around doing like uh, advisor matching for her PhDs. And so I sat down with Francis and said, I really enjoy working in your lab. I... Think directed evolution and protein engineering are really cool, but I don't want to become an organic chemist. And so Francis looked at me and said, That's fine. We have a project taking off around engineering these membrane proteins is very complex proteins. And we'd like to use some machine learning to do that. And our last machine learning person graduated a few years ago, would you be interested in taking that on in the lab? And at this point, I had done your typical chemical engineering quantitative courses like thermodynamics and statistical mechanics and reaction kinetics and some statistics, but I'd never actually done machine learning or statistical learning before. But it sounded like a good fit. So I thought I'd try it out. And I agreed to join our lab and to take on this project. And so. That project mostly involved Bayesian optimization and Gaussian processes to optimize these membrane proteins. But then I d- discovered that I really liked the quantitative and machine learning part of it. And as my PhD went on, I also kind of got into some of the deep learning aspects and some of the early protein ve- uh, vector embedding ideas that were kind of swirling around at the time. And I also had some purely experimental projects, but they didn't work. So I gradually just focused on the machine
0: learning ones. And so that's kind of how I fell into machine learning. Awesome. As I was mentioning earlier, I guess a lot of our listeners are now going to be familiar with protein engineering as a space of interest, thanks to DeepMind and AlphaFold. And I guess I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of coming off of your PhD and, and working forward to today, where it seems like there's still, or there is a lot more interest in this space, maybe still not enough, but certainly a lot more, it feels like, and maybe some of the problems that people are aware of kind of coming from outside the space feel at least a little bit more tractable. Could you tell me a little bit about what it was like when you were just coming out of your PhD to be, to be working in this space, what that looked like for you? You mentioned you were using Bayesian optimization, Gaussian processes, these um, techniques that I think a lot of people sort of coming in today probably haven't spent much time with and how that sort of evolved.
1: All right. So when I first graduated, people were just starting to get excited about using machine learning for protein engineering. And the idea was pre-machine learning, there's kind of two ways people engineered proteins, right? One was uh, directed evolution, where you get a starting point And you have a screen for the thing you want to make your protein do. And you have to have some starting activity on that screen. And then you just make random changes to your protein and keep the best ones. And over one or a dozen rounds of that or hundreds of rounds of that, you can get something that's really good. Without necessarily understanding the mechanism, or the physics, or the biophysics behind your optimization, and that works really well uh, for many things. We've uh, the Arnold Lab has designed uh, new enzymes, etc., with that kind of technique. And the disadvantage, of course, is you don't necessarily gain any understanding, and is you have to have a starting point for your optimization. And then there's this other paradigm of uh, rational design, generally, where you do try to understand the biophysics behind the property or the function you want to infer on your protein. And you look at structures and you do simulations or you do energetics computations and you try to design your protein to take the func- the fold you want to take. And hopefully that fold or that structure leads to the function you want. And it's a much more bottom-up, uh, first-principles type of method. Uh, the disadvantage is that it's much harder to do these very complicated properties like like a, a catalysis because we can't exactly compute the energetics and the biophysics at the level of detail needed to do that kind of engineering necessarily. And in proteins, we're working in a regime where small differences in energetics matter a lot. So even though it should give you the, the benefit of being able to do things from first principles, which is generalize better to new systems. In practice, there are many functions that are very difficult to engineer this way. So what I kind of did in my PhD, building on earlier work from Phil Romero, who is now at the University of Wisconsin, and um, even earlier work using very simple models, is showing that instead of just relying on when you do direct evolution, instead of just taking the best or best several mutants at each stage, if you sequence everything, and now you know all the sequences, all the protein sequences, and you have measurements for all of them. If you feed that information into a machine learning model and then use that model to choose the next uh, set of variants you want to see, instead of just taking the best one, making it the new parent, and making mutations again, you can actually do much better. And much better in the sense that you'll need many fewer measurements to get to the same result. And there are some cases where those measurements are slow or expensive, that it takes direct evolution from being impractical to being practical. And so when I first came along with PhD, that's kind of what I focused on. And there was already a fair amount of industrial interest in this sort of thing. But there's also a newer paradigm in machine learning where instead of only just being kind of an add on to directed evolution, which we'd shown my PhD and some other people had worked on as well, is very possible and gives you big benefits. And uh, you can actually use very simple models, and almost anything will do better than not using any data at all and not using any modeling at all. So the bar for having gains is pretty low. But there's also a more challenging paradigm where you go look at all of natural protein space and you build generative models and try to create new starting points from scratch. So kind of go around the lack of um, exact computations we can do on the biophysics side, but also not require um, as many measurements to get starting points as traditional directed evolution. And you really try to leverage all of the information in uh, sequences, protein sequences we know about instead of only the ones you've measured for a particular project. And people do that in a general model sense. They also do it in a pre-training sense, where you try to hope that by learning some statistical patterns from natural sequences that probably aren't labeled with the particular measurement you want, you can get better predictions on the property you want with a smaller data set.
0: So I guess, especially in in recent years, as we've brought some of these techniques to bear and they've started to work better, still speaking maybe at a high level here before we dive into a couple of your papers on, on generative models and techniques in that space. As you mentioned, there are still some key challenges here, but it does seem like we've been able to at the very least, accelerate things on the machine learning side. I know you were quoted in this Nature article saying that now one machine learning person can generate enough designs to keep 100 biologists busy for months. And so there's this bottleneck of real-world testing where now we're able to kind of get a bunch of ideas out there for these are potential proteins that might have structures optimized for a certain problem that have certain qualities we want. Now it's sort of the time to test them. Could you maybe just speak a little bit, though, to what that full flow kind of looks like from when we're thinking about, okay, maybe I'm starting from the point of I'd like to generate, develop proteins that have some qualities of interest to the point of how do we get that to kind of the real world?
1: Yeah, so. In the machine learning guided direct evolution sense, it means you have a screen already, right? So you're working with people who do the wet lab part, who do the experimental measurements. You have a screen, you probably have an expression system that's gonna make the protein. So whether that's E. coli or yeast or mammalian cells or something else. So you have a lot of these, you have to have tight integration with your bench scientists pretty early on for those kinds of things. And then ideally in that model, you work closely with wet lab, wet lab scientists to collect the initial data set because the ways that humans like to think about collecting initial data sets aren't necessarily the best ways to collect data sets to train machine learning models. So, a lot of times you can do better if you think through that process together and work together from the very beginning there. And then the process there looks like you work with the wet lab people to collect data and then you train a model on that data and you have some method of going from predictions to choosing these are the next sequences we're going to see that uh, we'd like to see and you want to take into account how many rounds of experiments do you want to do how much those experiments cost how long do they take and things like that and then you choose a new new rounds and then you go back in the lab and it's kind of human guided at every step honestly a lot of these tight collaborations so that's this machine learning guided direct evolution paradigm, right? Now, if you want to be much more ambitious and say, "I have this desired thing I want my proteins to do," I would like to generate starting points from scratch, from a generative model or from a structure based model or anything else. There, once again, you really need to be talking to your lab people from the beginning, just to know like what kind of experiments are feasible. Right, And what kind of um, functions can you measure feasibly? And at this point, at least, there's still a lot of biology that we don't necessarily feed into the models right away to, that we want to take into account. For example, if you train your models on sequences across organisms, but you're, you want to express in one specific organism, there might be things you have to keep in mind. Like, do you need secretion signals for that organism? Or... Is this a system where you don't want secretion signals or even things like codon usage and to get your system to make the protein, to express the protein are really important up front. And then yeah, thinking through how many shots are you going to have? How many rounds do you want to do? Even before you get to generating things from a model, right? And uh, the goal of a lot of those things too is on the modeling side to know how you can Uh, sort or select the things you generate to give you uh, generated sequences that are likely to work in your particular system in the lab. So once you have that, you can think about the modeling side. And this is honestly the very edge of the state of the art, is specifying a desired function and being able to generate starting points. So there's not a lot of examples of this yet, um, especially if the function is new and you're not starting from, you're not just diversifying around a natural starting point. I don't want to say there's not been any examples, but uh, it's it's a very challenging problem, right? And you can think about what kind of model do you want to use? How do you want to incorporate the functional information? Those kinds of questions are really big. And then is there any way you can do in silico tests to to kind of filter down the things you've generated. Of course, if we had perfect in silico tests, then we'd already have solved the problem. But are there any orthogonal predictors you can use to increase the hit rate, basically, so that uh, you're not wasting your time
0: making things to the lab that have no shot at working? Awesome. So this is a super helpful introduction, I think, to the high-level picture. I'd love to dive into a couple of your works and I splice these generally into two sections. So first, I was thinking we could talk about generative models pre-training for proteins and chemistry. And I think here, let's maybe just start with a broad introduction to the space, what we're trying to do here. You've already talked a little bit about using generative models and sort of developing a starting point from which we can get to. A particular desired outcome, a, a desired property. But let's, I guess, thinking about connecting what's sort of going on. You've worked on protein structure generation via folding diffusion and all of these different techniques, but maybe just introducing at a high level some of these questions of okay, well, what are some of the promises here? What is it that we are eventually trying to do? We have a protein that now has a specified function what are what are some of the possibilities there how might people see this manifest
1: right so at a high level we would like to make proteins do things that people are interested in right so if we go look in nature there's many many proteins they do all sorts of cellular functions they are responsible for uh structure they're responsible for signaling they're responsible for catalysis and Sometimes we can take a protein from nature and it already does something useful. Maybe it's a useful drug or maybe it does a useful reaction at scale, right? But many times we know that there are other things proteins could do that nature hasn't asked them to do because they're not needed by evolution. Uh, kind of my canonical example of this is that a, a while back, Francis's lab made um, an enzyme that can make carbon-silicon bonds, and it turns out this is not that hard for enzymes to do. It's just not been selected for in nature because you, we don't use carbon-silicon bonds in natural metabolism. And we do this not just to because it's fun or because it's cool to make to see what's possible, but also because uh, these proteins are used might be useful as therapeutics, as um, cancer drugs, as antimicrobial drugs or or they might be useful in industrial catalysis right you will want to they're often more selective and less toxic than heavy metal catalysts that we commonly use to make chemicals and so that simplifies your downstream purification and it means you're not working with these toxic heavy metal catalysts as much and so there's a promise of kind of green green chemistry there right if you can design enzymes to do reactions that are useful industrially to humans. Those are kind of the two main branches of things I think about, but there's also a lot of kind of smaller niche, there's a long tail of niche application, things like, can we make a protein that will functionalize silk to make it have, make it feel better against your skin or make it more waterproof, et cetera, things like that. Or can you design uh, proteins to go into silk, that will give it better properties, right? Because silk is made from animal proteins. So those sorts of things, uh, there's basically, yeah, there's a lot of things people want to do with proteins. And the question is, how do you engineer or design proteins to do that? So then the promise of these generative model and pre-training type things is that if we go look in natural sequence space, That there's information we can use there across different engineering projects and pre-training and generative generative modeling are kind of two perspectives on how to use that information so in both cases you go look at natural proteins you look at their sequences look at their structures maybe look at free text describing them you look at the chemical reactions they do maybe do some some molecular dynamics computations on them and you incorporate some set of that information into a model. And then the kind of pre training genera- generative modeling paradigms treat that model a little differently. In pre-training, you hope that by learning patterns from natural proteins, you can make predictions on specific systems you care about with fewer data points in the lab. In the general modeling sense, you hope that uh, first you can just generate new proteins that are different from existing ones and do anything that proteins do. And more ambitiously, you hope that you can specify the new thing you want your proteins to do. Give that to your model, your model is seeing natural proteins and has an idea of what they do so it can make new proteins
0: that do this new thing you would like to do so this is this is really clarifying, and I'd love to start diving into some of the specific methods that you've pursued here. The first one is a technique that I think a lot of people are familiar with thanks to the whole text to image movement we've seen that's involved a lot of diffusion models. So this was your protein structure generation via folding diffusion paper, where you're using this denoising method that I think a lot of people are going to be maybe vaguely familiar with if they've seen some of the papers. But instead, you're doing folding diffusion, you start from a random unfolded state, and you work your way towards a stable folded structure. Could you tell me a little bit about The method in this paper, and perhaps maybe some of the intricacies that appear, if there are any that we should be aware of when we're thinking about denoising towards folded structures that might not appear in other domains where we might apply diffusion.
1: Right. So, the key bit of background here is that for many proteins, most proteins even, we have the raw amino acid sequence, right? There's 20 amino acids that are common in nature, and they differ by a side chain. So they they both, they all have an amine group and a carboxylic acid group, different side chain uh, proteins in nature are made from a covalently bond, covalently bonded chain of these uh, amino acid residues. And the identity of those side chains and the order of the residues in your protein determine the properties of the protein. So we call that the sequence, or you also hear structural biologists call called the primary structure. And that primary structure of that sequence then folds into often the three-dimensional shape. And in actuality, that three-dimensional shape is always moving around because we're not at absolute zero, so that actually this as a conformation. And uh, the actual thing the protein does is often mediated by this three-dimensional structure, which we call um, the tertiary structure in structural biology terms. A secondary structure is a smaller structure motifs that occur. And then those get put together in a tertiary structure. And there are proteins or domains called intrinsically disordered domains or intrinsically disordered proteins, which don't have uh, a stable structure in this way. And the function isn't mediated mediated exactly the same way. But for many proteins and for uh, many of the proteins we care about, we we do have this sequence of structure to function paradigm. So the intuition behind why you might want to generate structure is because if you can generate new structures, new structural conformations, that should lead to new functions, right? And there's an important distinction here that uh, a lot of these generation papers make between the whole structure and the backbone structure. So the backbone structure is the placement of all the atoms in the protein that aren't the side chain. And the idea here is that if you can generate new backbone structures, we can then back out the exact amino acid identities the the side chains that will let you fold to that structure and there's many now machine learning based and non machine learning based methods for backing out the sequence so we give you a certain structure and you generate the structure space and because that's closer to function and that's uh you're kind of bypassing a lot of the biophysics of folding, you should be able to generalize, generalize really well to new structural space, right? So, the first, so once people saw diffusion models, they really started wanting to apply these from images really to protein backbone structure. And it also makes sense to apply diffusion to structure as opposed to sequence, because the most successful diffusion models add continuous Gaussian noise to images, right? And it makes sense to add continuous noise to these uh, 3D coordinates. So the first attempts at this did just that. You take the 3D atomic coordinates of the backbone and you add noise to them. So at every step, there's there's a forward diffusion process for every step. You add some noise to every coordinate or to to Whichever coordinates you're going to keep track of. And then your neural network tries to back out what the what noise is added during training. And the generation time, you start from all noise and you step by step denoise it to arrive at a realistic, realistic looking set of coordinates. Now, the problem with this, and this shows really promising results, but if you think about how proteins actually are are put together, there's a lot of um, information there that you're just kind of enduring by letting by just diffusing on the three D atomic coordinates directly. For example, contiguous amino acids can't be across far apart from each other, right? And there's a certain there's certain allowable distributions of like how far apart each residue can be from the next and what uh, how they can be rotated in proportion to each other. So. The intuition behind folding diffusion was, instead of looking directly at the atomic coordinates, now we're going to look at a minimal set of bond angles and dihedral angles, which are, it's an internal coordinate system, internal to uh, the chain, so that every residue, you can place atoms by saying, how are they related in angle space? to to the atoms we've already placed. right? And this is a much more compact representation because we're we're encoding a lot of information about what's possible in 3D space instead of just letting the atoms fly around wherever they want to go. And so that should make the model have to do a lot less work. It also means that we don't have to keep track of things like equivariance in 3D space, equivariance to rotation or translation because everything's an internal reference frame. And that really simplifies the neural net part because we could just use a vanilla transformer. And this really illustrates the importance of thinking carefully about not just the machine learning side and just not just blindly taking things that work in other fields, but really thinking about the, I want to say structure, but then we're over the term structure, (laughs) but the constraints of this this new system you're applying your methods to, right? And so we call the a folding diff, because as you go down the chain, you can think of uh, knowing these interatomic angles as kind of being inspired by the f- physical process of folding the protein chain from something that's just kind of wiggly in space to a structured uh, protein domain. And we, find that uh, this is a lot more efficient and gives you better generation than diffusing directly in atomic coordinates. Of course, this is a very popular field right now, and soon after we did this, other people found um, even empirically better ways to encode that internal reference frame, and also to scale the model to give even stronger results and even more realistic generations.
0: So Working a little bit beyond diffusion, you've both, I guess, in review papers and in your own research examined a couple of different ways of of tackling similar problems here. And so you had this great review paper that went over some of the things we've kind of already discussed on protein sequence design and how that works with generative models. You um, sort of covered some of the tasks that these generative models perform. And you also had this other work where you were looking at applications of predicting protein evolutionary dynamics. And I think that might be actually a pretty interesting one for us to jump into about how protein language models can predict mutational effects across diverse proteins. I think that we've, I've had at least one other conversation where people were looking at applying language models to the sequence prediction problems. And that's another sort of domain that you've sketched out. Do you want to talk about that work maybe a little bit more in depth as well?
1: Yeah, so before I did this folding this diff project which was a project that uh, we did with an intern here at Microsoft originally. I'd focus the most of my work on you can on sequence space because ultimately what you make in the lab what you synthesize in the lab is a sequence, right? So in my mind it often makes sense to work directly in that space. And so when we talk about general models of protein sequences, a lot of approaches have kind of borrowed from natural language processing because it's kind of like making sentences where your vocab size is only the 20 amino acids, basically, right? And so we've seen both those mass language models and kind of left to right all regressive language models in the protein space. And I trained some of those myself, and they work pretty well for a lot of things. And we can talk more about how they work or don't work in the pre-training design a bit, but for the generation side, people have found that you can use left-to-right autoregressive aggressive models to do a pretty decent job across uh, global sequence space. We have some work now coming out soon, hopefully. It might even be out by the time this podcast actually comes out, where we actually do sequence diffusion. So discrete diffusion models on the sequence space. And there's a few discrete diffusion methods out now in natural language. And in general, they, it's hard to say if it's they, they, that they don't do as well as like the left-to-right GPT-style things, or just no one scale them up to the same extent? But they're not as popular definitely as the left-to-right GPT-style thing, things. But we tried a lot of these on global sequence space, and we find that although they don't necessarily beat the left-to-right models on just raw generation, They do have some properties that are really nice uh, in the sense that, for example, if you're not limited to generating left to right, it's a lot easier to say, I want to fix this part of the sequence and generate around it, right? And people have done that with structural motifs before, but we show that you actually don't need to use the structure to do that. And the other benefit of diffusion models that people really like, is that there's lots of ways to condition them on function. And you can definitely condition the left to right autoregressive modeling function. But uh, the disadvantage there is that once your token is generated in the left to right model, you can't go back and fix it. Right? Whereas in the diffusion model, you kind of mess with the whole sequence at every step, So, which I think is what makes these text-conditioned image generation models so successful right? because they, ref- they do this iter- iterative refinement process on the whole image. and or working to show that you can do that analogously, directly in sequence space even with different models. So that's kind of the generative language model side of things. So on the pre-training side, people have often done both autoregressive and these mass language models for pre-training. And so the idea behind a mass language model is you corrupt some fraction of your amino acids, you run it through a transformer or a component, and then you try to predict, given the bi-directional context, the identity of the masked or corrupted residues. All right. And uh, this is good for a lot of things. So one thing people have found is that when you do this, you kind of get out structural information for free, especially if you use a transformer. For Fold, for protein folding, the majority of the energetics are pairwise from pairwise interactions. And so it turns out that the attention mechanism in the transformer is a pairwise mechanism. So it gives you a really nice um, inductive bias for those sorts of things. And uh, it turns out that the longer you pre-train a mass language model on sequences, the more structural information you encode. And the bigger you make the model, the more structural structural information you encode. We also find that if you take a set of evolutionarily related um evolutionarily related sequences and you look at the places where they differ and you run them through a language model and see a mass language model and see whether it wants to go from sequence a to sequence b or sequence b to sequence a and you do that for a whole bunch of related sequences you can kind of put them in a pseudo time evolutionary ordering and to me at least this is a really surprising result and so when Brian here came to me asking me to, uh, to collaborate with him on this, my first response was to like suggest about 50 experiments to make sure this was a real thing <laughs> and to try to prove that it was just some artifact we'd found. But eventually, he did convince me that this was a real thing. And so we showed that with these pre-trained models, if you take, for example, a bunch of exam through time of a flu protein. And flu is a really good example here because we've been surveilling it for a long time. And it also evolves very quickly so that the decades we've been surveilling it are sufficient to get some significant evolution. That the pseudo time you get out by doing these comparisons with a mass language model actually correlate very well with the order in which these these sequences arise in real time. So we show that there, I'm sure some, you could show this for like the coronavirus spike protein. And then we also uh, showed it for a bunch of other proteins across sequence space and try to get useful results out of that, right? So that's kind of another cool thing that just fell out of doing these mass language model evaluations. For people though, who want to do things that aren't just I say say just as if it's it's trivial, but it's not trivial, (laughs) but but that are not predicting structure. Like I said earlier, the longer you pre-train these big models and the bigger the model and the better the pre-train result, the more structural information they encode. But for protein engineering, we don't always just want structure. We want to know I've made some mutations to this protein. I've measured how well it does a reaction or um, some other thing I care about. I would like to make more mutations that haven't been seen before, necessarily, and see, and I'd like my model to predict what those mutations would do, right? And so if we take benchmark data sets that really try to test the sort of generalization, and often difficult sorts of generalization, like I've trained on all the single and double mutants, I'd like to predict the effects of higher order mutations, or I've trained on everything that's as good as or worse than the original printing I started with at this thing I'd like to do, and I'd like to find things that do better, that um, the bigger the model, the longer you pre-train it, doesn't necessarily give you better results downstream the way it does for structure. And we actually also go layer by layer through the model and look at the representations. And we find that going deeper in the model, the representations don't necessarily get better either. And this tells us that, The mass language modeling pre-training task that has been really successful in natural language, obviously, and also really good at encoding structural information in your pre-trained model is not necessarily sufficient for some of the more fine-grained engineering type things that we care about. This was also an intern project last summer by a student named Francesca, uh, Francesca Lee. You can see, where our interns do really cool things here.
0: Yeah. Um, so, some of what you're talking about here, it strikes me that there are some really interesting analogies to recent findings with language models. So, what you were just speaking about, that the mass language model pre training task necessarily doesn't necessarily um, scale in the way that people might suppose for some of these specific tasks. There's some, I think, related work in language modeling looking at, well, if we you know, continue to train bigger language models, we train them more, then they might pick up certain things about language, subject-verb agreement, these sorts of grammatical things. However, if you look at maybe more complicated grammatical constructions or things you might want them to know about syntax, about how language works, then... Just the standard language modeling task doesn't quite work that well. And so similarly to what you're saying here, we analogously might need some more specific ways of training those models to pick up on that sort of thing. And so this brings up to me, I think, a set of questions under this umbrella that I think I gestured at earlier, which is some of the analogies and disanalogies between the ways we think about concepts and certain findings we've had between language models for proteins, and then language models for, well, language. And maybe we can start with some of the the higher level pictures of that. One thing in in particular I'm kind of interested in is a lot of um, these techniques and things you've spoken about dive into representation learning for proteins. And for language, of course, we have all these things we say about linguistic representations, the distributional hypothesis, these intuitions we have. How do some of those intuitions maybe carry over or not carry over? Can you speak to any of the disanalogies there?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the early work in protein language modeling definitely also has made that distributional assumption, right? That similar amino acids or similar sets of amino acids occur in similar contexts, which is the assumption behind things like BERT and things like seek to vec right? And the f- first approximation, it does work. But the question is, what is it useful for downstream? Right? And when it comes to, I think the, actually the biggest difference between modeling protein sequences and modeling natural language at a high level is that humans are really good at evaluating natural language. It might be hard to do it scale automatically because um, computers are bad at it. But if you show sentences to people, it's off people can form very quick opinions about is this a r- realistic looking sentence right unfortunately people have really bad intuitions often about what makes the realistic looking protein sequence or protein structure and so right away uh, compared to other general modeling domains we don't have that easy just look at it kind of evaluation and there's benefits and drawbacks so the Drawback, of course, is you can't base you can't eyeball model <laughs> generations. Uh, the benefit is you're really teaching, hopefully machines to do things that people are bad at, and that really, in my opinion at least, expands humanity's capabilities in ways that teaching machines to people to do things people are pretty good at doesn't. But back into some of these more grounded things, we can think of protein sequences as having grammar or having um, compositionality, like language, but that often looks very different, right? Because proteins are synthesized in a certain order, that N to C order, right? To make those covalently bonds, covalent bonds. But when they evolve, that's not the or- that's not how they evolve, right? You mutations can happen anywhere. You also get duplication events. You get deletion events. And those are are selected for through evolutionary time. Uh, But they're also organized uh, differently in the sense that there are functional domains. So you might have a very long protein sequence, uh, but there are multiple structural domains within that that kind of evolve almost separately. right? And then they might be joined by disordered regions, or by, by loops, or by other things. And the biggest difference here to language is that we don't get markers necessarily of where those units start or stop. There's no spaces between words. There's no periods between sentences types of things. So that, that's another big, big difference, right? And then the whole part where your sequence folds to a three-dimensional structure most of the time or for disordered proteins works in an ensemble of loose, more loosely folded structures, it is a paradigm that's not really present in natural language. Or I don't know if there's a good analogy for that in natural language, and that function is mediated through this uh, biophysical structure. So that you can think of it as a disadvantage in that you can't port things as easily from natural language. But you can also think of it as an advantage in that there are many. Th- ways you can leverage that information right
0: yeah and i guess as you've spoken to the the biophysical information is um or can be pretty crucially important when you're looking at how do we generate proteins that are not found in nature that might have functions that we want while we're on this question of analogies and disanalogies maybe another that i'd love to take up actually relates to another paper that you worked on about convolutions being competitive with transformers for protein sequence pre-training. And you had this really interesting finding that the pre-training task itself, not the transformer architecture, as you kind of gestured at before, is the essential component that makes pre-training effective. And I guess what I'm wondering here, though, is about, well, convolutions versus transformers, there's often this question for us of inductive biases. And you do talk about that complementary inductive biases might exist in CNN, so they might offer this. But could you speak a little bit to those complementary inductive biases, how they manifest and maybe help in some of the tasks you're interested in? And then maybe to that broader question of, again, what are some of the analogies, disanalogies here in that question of inductive bias? This is a
1: really hard one because the deductive biases you would ex- that matter, you would expect to differ by downstream tasks a lot of times, right? And it's also hard because in general, people use transformers and then we use one specific conv- a CNN architecture. There's infinite ways you could combine those and remix those and recombine those or just other things you could do, right? Like in text, people have tried just using uh, feed networks and transposing the sequence in between stages and it, you get reasonable performance for some tasks, right? So that's a really challenging question to separate out um, the pre-training tasks, the downstream tasks, and the architecture and inductive biases. And I don't think we really have a good handle on that. and. I mean, we, I wrote one paper saying that for some tasks uh, and at some scales, CNNs or certain CNN architecture is very competitive with the current transformer architectures we have, right? But uh, those interactions, there's so many interactions there to account for. It's really hard to make definitive statements. And th- that's why, like in the paper, we're really careful never to say like, CNNs are better than transformers or transformers are better than the CNNs because it depends on the exact task you want to do. And we see for different downstream tasks, one architecture does better, but we also don't test the interaction of architecture with pre-trained task or architecture with pre-trained data set. I think the take-home message there is more that we shouldn't necessarily just assume that one architecture is the best just because it's popular and that we should be Open to trying other things, but also that designing these architectures is re- is really hard right Because to a large part extent we're not doing it rationally, we're just trying things and <laughs> hoping they work, which I guess is all biology
0: but and and very much all of deep learning I think it's very yeah. <laughs> very empirical
1: There's a lot of similarities there between deep learning and bioengineering just
0: it's a it's a good complementary fit, isn't it? So you said in conclusion on this Convolutions paper, and I think I, I guess I already mentioned this quotation about the pre-training task being the essential component, making things effective. Are there other pre-training tasks you've identified that might prove promising for protein structure prediction in general, other tasks of interest?
1: Yeah, so for structure prediction, people have tried a lot of the same variants. People try natural language, right? You can do BERT. Or maybe in Bert, you should have a higher masking percentage, or only mask and not do the corruption parts. Or maybe you should do spam masking. is pretty popular nowadays, where instead of um, masking randomly, you mask uh, contiguous a set of contiguous things, right? Um, so that you can't get that near context as easily and have to rely more on longer range context. Uh, but a lot of those things, in my opinion, at least, are kind of fiddling around the edges of a certain paradigm, right, of this self-reconstruction and sequence-based paradigm. And probably the most creative example I've seen is also looking at the pairwise statistics when you make your BERT predictions. Uh, but even that is, to some extent, tweaking around the edges of this self-reconstruction task. Some things we've been, we've I've definitely been thinking a lot with people at MSR and some interns about ways we can do better than, or differently than self-reconstruction. Because self-reconstruction works really well for backing out structural information. But like I said earlier, it doesn't work super well for some of the downstream engineering tasks we care about. And so here we're thinking about things like, can we build in information from other information from databases like text or uh, reaction information? Or can we bake in information from explicit energetics computations into the pre-training task, and those, those in the hope that yeah, for different downstream tasks, you need different you need to encode different information, right? And so that's still pretty ongoing work. We have don't necessarily have super concrete results yet, but we're hopeful.
0: Sure. Another connection to this pre-straining and downstream tasks and kind of finding those to be relevant was another paper you spoke about where you were investigating whether the final layer representations for pre-trained protein language model transfer learning, um, whether that final layer of representation is what we want. And I think as you mentioned, you found that getting outputs from the middle layer can be effective as effective as a full model transfer, basically.
1: Right, so that's the I was referring to earlier when I said the, for on structure, if we're predicting structure, the deeper the more layers you have and the deeper in the model you go, the better. The longer you train the model, the better, and the bigger the model, the better, right? And we find that all of those things can be false for engineering tasks. So it's, it's oftentimes a middle layer that's better. oftentimes not a, a, layer, a model that's not as big. Does better and oftentimes if you take different training pre-training checkpoints an earlier checkpoint would do better or the same
0: one one question i have about this too is just in terms of maybe the the semantics of representations if there's something you've or if there's anything you've examined that domain because i think often one intuition that's often presented about convolutional models is that the early layers right they're going to do this sort of large-scale detection of things like edges and that sort of thing. And then later on, as you go into the network, the representations, the particular filters are maybe picking out more fine-grained features. And you did, I think, give kind of a high-level intuition here about how maybe some of the later layers in these models you were investigating are sort of overfit to the pre-training task. But I was wondering if there are any, maybe, again, analogous intuitions you picked up about what is going on in those intermediate layers and how that kind of progresses?
1: So I haven't looked, honestly, I have not looked super deep into what each layer picks up. I know there are definitely people who are very interested in like going layer by layer or filter by filter or attention map by attention map and seeing what they pick up. My philosophy has always kind of been that if you, if there were easily interpretable features here, human interpretable features. We wouldn't need to do deep learning <laughs> the predictions we we're making. And so I've, and, and I know there are people who would disagree with this perspective, but I've always focused more on how well can you generalize to distribution things instead of what exact human uh, interpretable features are you picking up, right? And it's not to say it's not important to make sure you're finding causal features, for example, so that you because that's going what's going to help you generalize. But I'm not always convinced that those causal features are human interpretable.
0: That's a good way to think about it. It's I guess it seems like especially in a lot of the work I've seen on interpretability recently, that, much of it sort of gives us this imagination that we actually understand what's going on. And I think probably to the point that you just made, in a lot of cases, maybe there are causal mechanisms underlying what's going on. But again, as, as you said, we probably don't totally understand them. And we can we can give ourselves the illusion that we get what's going on, but we shouldn't always assume that. And so I think that that sort of empirical data seems to be the most important thing.
1: Yeah, because especially in biology, right, the underlying causal mechanisms are quantum mechanical force fields and uh, then molecular force fields. And even, even at the, a at the very small scale, I don't know that those are very interpretable to anybody except maybe a few people in the world really under, who are really deep into those things, right? And it's, it's not there's not always an analogy analogy. analogy. In the sense like with images where you can like point to this thing is what makes what makes me think it's a dog. Right. In the same way. Sometimes sometimes there is. Sometimes you can say from a simulation or from a structure, like this side chain being here or not being here is what switches the selectivity of this inside. But that's not always the case.
0: Maybe a good place for us to kind of close out this research section is. Sort of looking ahead, I guess, I think maybe a lot of people listening to this might be now kind of familiar with some of the work you've done, but maybe not aware of what exactly people are thinking about right now and sort of looking towards the future. You did give some hints at, you you also gave a presentation on multimodality in the context of deep learning for protein engineering, and you've sort of spoken already in our conversation to how some of this might work, where you're giving protein sequence, structure, maybe chemical reaction information, energetics, all of these different things to a model, and allowing it to do things based off of that. So I guess I'm curious a little bit more about what some of the directions you're most excited about and kind of watching right now are.
1: Yeah, so some of the directions I'm excited about, let's see. So I've mentioned uh, pre-training tasks that aren't self-reconstruction taken from that inspired by natural language, right? It's taking advantage of some of the other properties and modalities that are present in proteins for pre-training in the hopes that that will let you uh, do better in these engineering tasks. That's definitely one area. The other area is we have generally gotten fairly good now at uh, generating backbone structures or sequences that look like realistic proteins. I think the next step is really broad. And there's even some success in saying, like, I would like a binder to some molecule or to some other protein. And here's a binding motif. And I'm going to generate something that will stabilize a binding motif. And now I have a structure to do that. Probably a Baker lab even has, has been able to do that with some simple enzymes, with luciferases. All right. Uh, but being able to really generalize the kinds of functions you can generate de novo. Beyond some of these easier, easier ones that where the functional mechanism is pretty known and that you can design around. Uh, yeah, I think that's really gonna be the next step. And then obviously going to making those in the lab so that we know we're not
0: just hallucinating things. Awesome. I think this is probably a good place for us to end then. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was Really fascinating to hear more in depth on your research and some of your perspectives on all of this. I do hope this sparks our listeners' interest to hopefully start looking into what's kind of going on in the bio ML world and to start following your work as well. So, again, I really appreciate the work you're doing and that you spoke with me today.
1: Yeah, it was a pleasure to be on. Thank you.
0: And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, You can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.